Well, we have, as you probably know, uh, through the summer been going through a series on the family, and today is our last uh, message on that subject. And uh, I've mainly been in the New Testament. We've been in Ephesians uh, 5 and 6 uh, for several weeks and all that. We started in the Old Testament. But this morning what I want to do is go to the book of Proverbs, because Proverbs has a lot to say about various aspects of the family, and uh, it's kind of a good wrap-up. Some of this will be review a little bit, but it'll kind of be a summary of everything that we've looked at on the family, and uh, we'll go to the book of Proverbs this morning to conclude our series. And then next Sunday we'll be back in the book of Hebrews. But turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. After you have found Proverbs 4, let's stand together. Let's honor the Lord and His Word. Let's read it together. Proverbs 4, beginning of verse 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. You do not, do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Hear, my son, and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. Let's pray together. Father, we want that wisdom. Lord, we desire to have that kind of of wise instruction. And Lord, we not only want that, but we want that for our families. We want that for our children. Lord, we want to see... Uh, the next generation, uh, live with your godly wisdom. And Lord, we pray today as we think about the family, as we think about having this kind of wisdom and instruction, Lord, help us to know that this is best. This is your absolute best. And Lord, we pray that we will have uh, the kind of families that honor you and the kind of families that uh, show that your word is real that your word is powerful, and that uh, if we live according to the principles of your word, that we can have your best. So, Lord, we, uh, we pray this morning that you would um, use your word in our lives, that you would convict where that is needed, that you would encourage where that is needed, that you, were, you would comfort and strengthen where that's needed, that you would do your work in this place. And, Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is active and at work when we gather uh, together, that uh, your Holy Spirit uh, is 
with us to uh, enable us to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that would happen this morning, and that we would be open, that we would be receptive. And, Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know you today. So work in our midst in uh, a way that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to observe that families are really struggling in our day and time. A comedian of a previous generation pointed to Winston Churchill's immortal words, We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. And then said, sounds just like our last family vacation. Too many families are characterized this way. And yet, God has created the family to be the bedrock and foundation of human society. As the family goes, so goes the quality of life in this world. The late Chuck Colson once said, No other structure can replace the family. Without it, our children have no moral foundation. Without it, they become moral illiterates whose law is self. Ordained by God as the basic unit of human organization, the family is the first school of human instruction. Parents take small, self-centered monsters who spend much of their time screaming defiantly and hurling peas on the carpet and teach them to share, to wait their turn, to respect others' property. These lessons, he says, translate into respect for others, self-restraint, obedience to law, in short, into the virtues of individual character that are vital to our society's survival. The Bible has a lot to say about this most important institution of human society. God himself established marriage and the family. He is the only one who has authority to say how it is to function. And we have examined the family from both the Old Testament and New Testaments. But today, I want to summarize what God says from the book of Proverbs. In a nutshell, the teaching of Proverbs is that marriage to a godly spouse is one of life's greatest blessings. But it can become a miserable relationship if it deteriorates. Children who honor their parents are a great joy, while those who rebel against them can cause great pain. And respect for the aged is something that greatly pleases the Lord. The wisdom of Proverbs leads us to conclude that our greatest source of happiness is not success in business or accumulating wealth or fame. Our greatest source of happiness and fulfillment in this life is centered around the relationships that we develop, especially in the home.
And God has created us this way, and He has designed this world to operate on this fundamental principle. Our greatest satisfaction in life comes from our committed relationship with others and with Him. So this morning I want to give you a general overview of the wisdom of Proverbs as it relates to family issues. And we're going to examine this morning three primary areas. First of all, we'll look at God's wisdom in regard to the married. Secondly, we'll see God's wisdom in regard to the maturing. And then thirdly, we'll spend a few minutes on God's wisdom in regard to the mature. We began with wisdom in regard to the married. As we have seen in Genesis... God's original design for the family began began with the institution of marriage. And that's where the family begins. And yes, biblical marriage is always between a man and a woman. Anything other than that is a perversion from God's perspective. And you can say anything you want to say about that. And you can focus on what is politically correct. But again, God himself is the one and the only one who has the authority to declare what marriage is to be. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? And I don't know about you, I'm getting fairly fed up with a small minority of people trying to redefine what God has said. And I don't mind proclaiming something that the Bible declares That's not politics. That's biblical teaching. But the Bible's clear on that issue. It is marriage between a man and a woman. But let's look at what Proverbs has to say about marriage. The truth that we see in this book is that God desires marriage to be the most wonderful human relationship in this life. But it can become a miserable experience if we don't do things his way. Now, before we even look at any of these Proverbs, I need to point something out to you. Some have complained that all the negative aspects of marriage in Proverbs feature the bad characteristics of wives. And some think that there should be equal treatment of the negative characteristics of sinful husbands. But if you really think this through, Proverbs does not contain an entire chapter highlighting the godly husband, but it does have an entire chapter on the godly wife, chapter 31. And before you conclude that this book is sexist and is hard on women and easy on men, you need to be reminded that the most frequently encountered Negative models in this book are in the masculine gender. The negative terms that are given in the masculine are fool in several forms, sluggard, thief, liar, drunkard, mocker, brawler, and many more. Those are all in the masculine gender. In contrast to that, how is wisdom portrayed in this book? As a woman. So while it is true that 
some of the negative traits of wives are mentioned here. We should keep this in mind as we go through it. Now, we should also take note that all the general qualities of wisdom given in this book apply equally to both men and women. Even the grammatically masculine Proverbs. So, women can be fools just as easily as men, and women can be wise, and men can be wise. So, it goes both ways. By the way, there is no such thing as a completely godly man or woman, just there as there is no such thing as a completely foolish man or woman. So, there are degrees as we go through this. There is biblical warrant for characterizing someone as either wise or foolish. And if that was not the case, then the book of Proverbs itself could not make these kinds of characterizations. And as you look at the book of Proverbs, the wisdom that it provides has to do with how to look for a marriage partner. If you want a good marriage partner, you can learn that from the book of Proverbs. You want to be careful to marry someone who is generally wise as opposed to generally foolish, right? You want to find someone who is generally a hard worker as as opposed to someone who is generally lazy. And you could do that with every single characteristic that you find in the book of Proverbs. And by the way, I just can't help myself here, but it is in this aspect of choosing a marriage partner that we can often see most clearly the difference between the mystical view of knowing God's will and the wisdom view of knowing God's will. When it comes to the question of whom we should marry, Dan Phillips says, the majority Christianoid answer is that there is only one right man or woman chosen by God for us individually. And God wants us to find that one person and anyone else will be less than his perfect will. Right? He says, one very popular view has it that God must tell me directly who that person is. And he has to impart semi-revelation, subjective and fallible, discernible as if by divination. I am to lay aside my own mind and judgment and concern myself with only being, quote, open to the spirits rather than in making a good, wise decision. He says, if I am not in tune with God's vibrations, I might miss out on God's perfect will for the rest of my life. Now, if you've read my book, you know where I stand on that. But Phillips has a good handle on this whole issue. And he understands that the biblical approach has nothing at all to do with this kind of mystical divination of the will of God. It has nothing at all to do with a bullseye or a perfect uh, uh, dot, if you will, a perfect bullseye that we must strive to hit. The biblical approach has to do with employing godly wisdom to examine the traits of a godly husband and wife 
and to choose a mate that exhibits the wisdom and the fear of the Lord that is highlighted in the book of Proverbs. There's no Mr. Right and Mrs. Right in the sense of one single perfect fit for you. There are many you can choose from, but you need to make sure that the one you choose is wise and godly and not a fool or a sluggard or a drunkard, etc., etc. Now, if we had time this morning, we could go and look at all those positive and negative traits, but you'll just have to study that on your own. But your goal should be to study and know God's wisdom and then to find someone with those positive traits and to avoid, stay far away from those with the negative ones. In fact, Proverbs really is a great book if you are working on a list of character qualities to look for in a mate. If you are a single person this morning, it is important for you to understand that the things that make a person a failure in this life, ungodliness, lying, foolishness, laziness, a hot temper, short-sightedness, lack of discipline, etc., etc., those things will also make for a failure in a marriage partner. On the other hand, the same things that make this person wise and godly The fear of the Lord, wisdom, honesty, integrity, ambition, self-control, a gentle tongue, kindness, and on and on. That's what makes a good mate in marriage. Well, we better get to the Proverbs, hadn't we? Turn with me to Proverbs 11.22. Proverbs 11.22. Proverbs 11.22 As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. This proverb speaks of the danger of choosing a wife merely on the basis of physical beauty. The idea of this semi-humorous nugget is that of admiring the beauty of a golden nose ring glistening in the sun and then backing up a little bit and seeing that it's in the nose of a pig. Nose rings were very common in that culture. They were symbols of physical beauty. But folks, there's no way you can beautify a pig and make it anything other than what it is, that of a pig. In the same way, a woman who is beautiful on the outside but ugly on the inside is a foolish choice for a life mate. And the idea here is of physical beauty joined with moral and spiritual ugliness. That's not a good choice. In the same way that a Gold nose ring cannot overcome the ugliness and the stench of a pig, so the physical beauty of a woman cannot make up for a lack of moral and spiritual poverty. But now there's something else important in this verse to note. The word for lacks there means to turn aside from. Philip says, 
the picture is not simply of a pretty woman without a lot of area, a lot, without a lot in the area of native IQ, as if by accident of birth and heredity, she is simply lacking. Uh, she is not simply lacking, but she turns away. In other words, this is not talking about someone who just kind of isn't very bright. This is talking about someone who intentionally turns away. She is one who has chosen the way of foolishness over the fear of the Lord. Therefore, as Max Anders puts it, mere physical attractiveness cannot compensate for her surrender to moral weakness. In other words, if you have to choose between physical beauty or moral character, you should choose character every time. Make sure you find a woman who is beautiful on the inside, whether or not she is on the outside. Look with me at Proverbs 12.4. Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. A wife's character makes a huge difference in a marriage. Of course, the same could be said about the character of the husband as well. But this is coming at it from the perspective of the wife. If you want a portrait of an excellent wife, you could go to Proverbs 31 or you could go to the Old Testament book of Ruth. But this is the kind of woman who is a crown to her husband. She brings him honor and dignity. But a wife who lacks this kind of godly character can bring him a cancer in his bones. Literally, this reads, will cause his bones to decay or rot. This is a graphic way of describing excruciating pain. You'd better choose wisely. You'd better find an excellent wife. Go to Proverbs 14.1. Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. This proverb emphasizes the incredible power of a woman in the home. She has the ability to either build up the house or tear it down. Now, the house here doesn't mean a literal, physical house. It refers to the family. If a woman is wise, she will be able to build and establish her family in the Lord. But if she is foolish, she will eventually destroy it. How do you build a house biblically? Well, Proverbs tells us. It says in Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. This speaks of the knowledge of Scripture and her submission to the will of the Lord. Phillips writes, What counts and what builds a house is wisdom built on the fear of God and reverence for His ways and priorities. Only that equips a woman to be God's first-rate 
house builder. Turn with me to Proverbs 19, and we're going to be all over the place this morning, so have your Bible ready. Proverbs 19, and look with me at verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 19. Here's what it says. A foolish son is, is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, we're going to talk about the parenting side of the family in a moment. But having a foolish child is one of the most painful experiences a parent can ever have. We've talked about that. The word destruction there can be translated disaster, but it literally means chasm. In other words, for the disappointed father, it's like falling over a cliff into a chasm. It's that painful. But equally distressing is being married to a contentious wife. This is sometimes translated a quarrelsome wife. The word for quarrelsome is rendered as connected to dissension, strife, disputes, and arguments. And the perpetual discord that is brought about by a contentious wife is likened to a constant dripping. It is a relentless irritation, just like a leaky roof. Drip, drip, drip. Anders writes, just as a constant dripping can cause exasperation and permanent damage to a house, she can cause irreparable harm to the family relationships. But on the other hand, nothing can bring more joy to a man than to have a prudent wife. She is her husband's greatest asset, and he counts himself blessed of the Lord to have her as his wife. And even though he might expect to receive an inheritance of houses and land and other forms of wealth from his father, he knows that a gift of a precious and prudent wife can only come from God. And whatever a man may have done to choose wisely, he knows ultimately that this woman is really a gift from God. Look with me at Proverbs 21.9. Proverbs 21.9. It's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Verse 19 says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Chapter 25, verse 24 says, It's better to live in the corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. You hear this echoed all through Proverbs. Now, all the women out there are saying, well, yeah, but, but what about the husband? What about him? Yes, you can turn this around. It does apply to the husband as well. But what this is emphasizing here is just how bad it can get if the person you're living with is quarrelsome. You'd be better off living in the corner of an attic or in the middle of the desert than living with them. 
Now, if you have an excellent wife, count yourself blessed. If you have a godly husband, count yourself blessed. Turn with me to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, verses 15 and 16. Proverbs 27, 15, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. You know, those flat roofs on homes in that day and time would often leak for hours after the rain had stopped. So in the same way, a contentious woman is a continual source of irritation. Now, verse 16 is a little difficult to translate, but in essence, it's talking about trying to ward off arguments by steering conversations away from touchy subjects or by trying to avoid certain people. Now, you can try to do this, But it is as futile as trying to restrain the wind. Listen, the next time a big storm comes out, go out and try to stop the winds. Now, good luck with that that one. But also good luck with trying to head off the agony of a contentious spouse. And again, this could be the husband or the wife. This is a problem in the home. Well, we could spend a whole lot more time on marriage, but we've got to move on. We need to go, secondly, to wisdom in regard to the maturing. Wisdom in regard to the maturing. What does the book of Proverbs have to say about raising children? What does it have to say about parents? And what does it have to say to children? And we've talked about all of these subjects throughout the summer, but we see the theme of parents teaching children right at the very beginning of this book. It is woven throughout this book, giving the right instruction to children. Look with me in chapter 1. Go back to the very first chapter of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful reed to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now, this tells us that one of the most important ways that a child can honor his parents is by listening carefully to them. The call to listen to wisdom is one that is found throughout this book. And that wisdom comes through parents. This call shows the importance of the responsibility of the parent to teach and train their children in biblical wisdom. It also emphasizes the responsibility of children to listen to that teaching and to heed its instruction. Now, some have claimed that the references to Fathers in Proverbs is really talking about the wise 
sages giving advice to their disciples. But the addition of the mother's instruction here makes it clear that this is talking about actual parents teaching their own children. And if you study the first nine chapters of Proverbs, you will find that it is couched as the instruction of a father to a son. But there are three times that the mother is also mentioned. So this is talking about the teaching of both parents to the sons and to the daughters. The word for teaching there in verse 8 is the word Torah. The Hebrew word is often translated law. Max Anders explains that when God gives the Torah directly, we call it the law. When a mother gives it, we call it teaching. It's it's teaching. It's instruction. In either case, it guides a person's behavior. At the same time, it teaches them how to live. How to live. And verse 9 goes on to talk about the rewards that come from heeding this teaching. It's like having a crown on your head. It's like having a gold necklace around your neck that symbolizes prosperity and respect that comes from wisdom that is passed down from the parents. It's, it's very rewarding to heed that instruction. And by the way, back in verse 8, the word for instruction is the word muzar. It means discipline or correction. And that points to the fact that both verbal teaching and physical discipline are required in parenting. You've got to have both. And one aspect of that, which is very prevalent in the book of Proverbs, is the rod of correction. And we've seen this. And although this really is a sensitive issue in our day and time, the Bible does not hesitate to make the point that physical, corporal punishment is a vital part of godly parenting. And we read these verses, but Proverbs thirteen twenty four: He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs twenty two fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child; the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs twenty three thirteen and fourteen says: Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with the rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. We've got to have both the instruction and the discipline. Now, I'm not going to expound on those passages because we're running out of time and we really have already talked about that. But before you begin to buckle under the pressure of our modern society and give up on any kind of physical discipline of children, I think it is important to realize this is the clear teaching of Scripture. This is the biblical perspective that we must have our verbal instruction, but that must be accompanied by loving discipline. And, of course, I'm not talking about physical abuse, but reasonable use of the rod of correction. But let's note some other aspects of parenting in Proverbs. Turn with me to Proverbs 10.1. Proverbs 10.1. 
Now, Proverbs 10.1 is interesting because this is the very first proverb of Solomon that is given here. Here's what it says. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Now, you could read son or daughter there, but these Proverbs make it clear that the happiness of parents is to a great degree tied to how well their children turn out. Look for a moment at chapter 17 and verse 21. 17.21 He who begets a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. No joy because of his children. Verse 25 says, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Those of you who have had rebellious children know exactly how true this is. There's no pain as deep as the pain of a parent who witnesses the rebellion and foolishness of a child who has made a mess of his life. And in the same way that parents rejoice when their children turn out to be wise, they also grieve when their children turn out to be foolish. And it's interesting that there are two different Hebrew words for fool in verse 21. The first word for fool is a word that means a dull, thick-headed person. But the second word for fool is the word nebal, and it means a completely obnoxious person. There are degrees of foolishness. And it ranges from someone who is stubborn to someone who has become detestable in his rebellion. In verse 25, the word that is used for grief is a very strong word that is also translated sorrow, provocation, or annoyance. In addition, he uses the word for bitterness to describe the pain that is experienced by the mother. And all these terms are employed to paint the reality of the extreme pain of having a foolish child. In fact, the Bible is very strong in its condemnation of rebellious children, as I'm sure you know. I mean, just turn with me, for example, to Proverbs 20 and verse 20. Proverbs 20.20. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. Now, that last phrase is talking about physical death. And in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Covenant, rebellious children came under the death penalty. The son rebelled against his parents and cursed them. They were instructed to take him outside the city and stone him to death. Now, of course, we certainly would see that today as extremely radical, but it emphasizes the fact that rebellion against parents is a serious, serious sin in the eyes of God. Now, that wasn't Moses' law. It was God's law 
given to Moses. This was God's word, God's instruction. And although we would not advocate stoning rebellious children today, we still need to see and understand that this is a serious sin in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you think that one is tough. I mean, turn with me to Proverbs 30 and verse 17. Proverbs 30, 17 Here's what it says. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Now, this is something we obviously should not take with wooden literalism here. It is pointing to the fact that God himself will judge rebellious children who rebel against their parents. God himself will judge. He may use the natural realm, to bring about destruction in that person's life. However he chooses to do it, but God will judge. And in our day and time, it may not be ravens and eagles. It might be uh, unemployment. It might might be economic hardship. It might be uh, some other painful experience. But God himself will judge those who rebel. There is a price to be paid by those who shun the teaching and the instruction of their parents and rebelliously plunge into a foolish lifestyle. Well, turn with me to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. We're getting close. Proverbs 23. Look at verses 22 through 25. Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. This passage gives the practical implications of obeying the fifth of the Ten Commandments. By the time your parents reach the last years of their life, you are to make sure they can rejoice at how you turned out. That's the instruction here. In their old age, they should be able to rejoice that you are now godly yourself, and you are now passing that wisdom on to their children. Look at Proverbs 17.6. This is one of my favorites. Proverbs 17.6. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. I know that is absolutely true. And if you don't believe me, just meet me after church and I'll show you all the pictures of my wonderful grandchildren. And I just want you to know that you have never, ever seen such sweet and wonderful children as my 12 grandchildren. I'm an old man and my grandchildren are my crown. They're my crown. And this verse also applies implies that it is a natural thing for children to be proud of their parents. 
This is all a part of God's plan for the family. And that honor then is passed from generation to generation in the context of this wonderful structure of the home. Anders writes, all of this is what God had in mind for the family as a portrayal of the love that marks the Trinity. In the same way that the Bible describes the loving relationship of the Godhead, so the family is to be a reflection of that example. Well, I can say a whole lot more about this aspect of the family as well. But let me just close with this. In the book, A Spiritual Clinic, author J. Oswald Sanders makes an interesting comparison between two Revolutionary War families. He compares the family of a man named Max Jute and the family of Jonathan Edwards. Jute was a godless man who married a woman of like character. Of the 1,200 known descendants from this marriage, 310 became vagrants, 440 lived a debauched lifestyle, 130 were sent to prison for an average of 13 years each, seven of them for murder. There were over 100 alcoholics, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes. And of the 20 who learned a trade, 10 of them learned that trade in prison. On the other hand, in the same time period, lived the family of Jonathan Edwards. He married a woman of like character, and from that marriage came 300 pastors, missionaries, and theological professors, over 100 college professors, over 100 attorneys, 30 of them judges, 60 physicians, more than 60 authors, and 14 university presidents. Three of them became United States congressmen, and one of them became the vice president of the United States. Truly, the heritage of a godly father and mother can have a lasting impact for many generations. Marriage is critical, and parenting is critical. Now, I didn't even get to the last point of our outline, which is in regard to the mature. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the wisdom of respecting the elderly and the aged. But we don't have enough time to look at that this morning. Well, let me ask you this morning, how are you doing? How is your family? Is it lining up with what God desires. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you would help us to have godly families, to have godly marriages, godly children, have that kind of character that we need to have. Lord, I pray for the single adults today that they would look for the right spouse, knowing how important this is, so that godly wisdom can be carried on to the next generation. We know this is your plan for the family. Help us to do all this according to what you have designed. 
Lord, I pray again, if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know Him today. Lord, I pray that uh, whatever decisions we might need to make this morning, we would be willing and ready to do that as you convict us to do it. So help us as we respond to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.